Mr. Larson, how you doing? You're on mute, sir. All right, can you hear me now? There he is. Let's What's go. What's going on? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I this is a story I was wanting to write for like three weeks, and like just it just it took a little bit longer than I was hoping for. So I'm happy that uh, we got it out there before the story of the Utah Jazz this uh, comet in the night burns out potentially. <laughs> so. Yeah, it it does feel like everything we publish right now, like with the jazz has like a short time span, right? Like a lifespan because they're about to play Minnesota. They're about to play Denver, Memphis twice, and then Dallas. You know, those could be all tough games. And then they have a heck of a schedule after that. Like, and, you know, frankly, like, again, at some point, maybe this team will go back to what they are on paper. But for what it's been so far, it's been pretty crazy. Is there, I mean, you're on the ground, you're following this team. Let's just jump right into it. Is this anything more than just the, the Twitter narrative? Like, is there anything different being reflected amongst people around the team about, like, eh, we're 4-1, this wasn't exactly the plan? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, not really. You know, I, I think that there is um something to be said like I I do think this team is just like legitimately trying harder on the court like especially defensively than last year's jazz team did where you know I I think there are so many videos and memes of just like guys letting you know guys drive by them whether that was Donovan Mitchell or Mike Conley or whoever it was you know obviously the jazz's defense wasn't good enough last year um and they just are like doing a better job of staying in front I think, honestly, a lot of what this is is, like, Will Hardy has never been scouted before and kind of kept his stuff close to the vest a little bit. And so teams are kind of struggling on on kind of, uh, frankly, like how many uh, threes the Jazz have been generating, kind of how to defend this kind of five-out read-and-react system that's really improvisational. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that, like, even boots on the ground, yeah, people are surprised at, at the Jazz being 4-1. and one. Yeah, and look, this is this is overreaction week, right? And yeah. people are very ready to jump to conclusions on small sample sizes. And there have been many a team, the 2013-14 Sixers come to mind, that ultimately found themselves in the cellar, as many expected, after a hot start. And I think also a similarity between that situation and this one, you know, the, the Sixers – that kind of it was it was an exclamation point when Sam Hankey traded Drew Holiday on draft night for an injured player in Nerlens Noel, right? Obviously, yeah. the Utah Jazz had a couple exclamation points with the dismantling of this team. You know, the Royce O'Neal trade first, the big Brian Windhorst moment, the two blockbusters we all know. Um, and this situation has left far more playoff caliber talent on a team that I think. You know, usually in a situation where there are leftovers, to use a lack of a better term, of actual playoff caliber players, teams know, okay, yeah, we have, you know, in, in Boston there was Rajon Rondo and even like smaller level like Brandon Bass and those, you know, holdovers from 
the big three Celtics tenure that Boston was able, and Jeff Green and Courtney Lee, that they were able to offload on other teams. Utah has a laundry list of players that I think teams are going to be continuing to poke around on because the Jazz signaled so loudly all throughout the summer that they were open for business and really caring mostly about not taking on too much long-term salary and taking on future, future draft picks. Um, and I think that might have lit a fire under these guys. I'm just suggesting you've been there. You would know better than me. It seems like a group that's kind of coming together of like a nobody believes in us. Let's put the league on notice. Let's advertise ourselves to all 29 teams, but also like, let's win some games. And I, I think it's a team that like had less success than like those Boston teams did. Right. Like, so like, Rondo had already, you know, found success. Brandon Bass, people kind of knew who they were. I think that's true of, like, Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson on this team. But then, like, you know, I think Lowry Markkinen still has, like, a lot to prove and, and, and you know, kind of wanted to show that he was on the upswing of his career and still had more to give. And uh, Kelly Olenek wanted to show that, like, he wasn't just cooked, right? Um, Colin Sexton wants to show that he can be the player that he was two years ago. Malik Beasley, same thing, wants to – rehabilitate his image and, and, and change who he is as a player, you know, and then you've got like uh, Rudy Gay wants to show he's not washed. Walker Kessler, you know, is, is a rookie trying to show his value in the league. And, and so you get like uh, Jared Vanderbilt even wants to show that like, Hey, I can be more than just like a bit energy player. I want to show that I can shoot and, and uh, you know, kind of be the lead defensive guy. You know, he's not Jada McDaniels on, in Minnesota. So I guess I would say like all of these guys, individually also have something to play for i think um and, and that and and to change their value in the league and kind of establish their value and, and that i think has led to you know I, I agree like in most of these situations um players don't play that well but i think because they each have like these again kind of individual incentives to play really well and to i i you know i give will hardy props for getting them to play then team basketball in that construct of of like it's not just them out going out and trying to get points. They are like kind of playing together and passing the ball really well. And, you know, obviously I think it's made them all look pretty good as players too. So to go specifically into Laurie, because honestly I <clears throat> wrote a story at Yahoo Sports today. Go check that out, please. It'd be great if you did. Really good kid. Um, and like when I talked, anyone I talked to from Chicago people to, his representation to Utah folks, to people in Cleveland, everyone really remarked on um, just how much of a family man this guy is, that there really is kind of like family man Larry and basketball Larry, and like that's it. Um, and maybe that's not, maybe on the surface that sounds not so noteworthy. Like there's a lot of people in the league who would just are dads and go to work and go home. But I think for it struck people how clear, how early on he was that 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 kind of identity was crystallized for him when he came in the league as a twenty-year-old rookie, um, expecting, and you know, having a baby mid-January or end of January of your rookie year, trying to figure out your footing in, and you go from Finland to Arizona, all of a sudden you're you're in the NBA. Um, I don't know, and and then the coaching changes and. I wrote about this at Bleach Report last summer, but the way the Bulls kind of held him hostage as a restricted free agent, um, refusing to uh, help facilitate a sign trade unless they received the first round pick back, 
but they also didn't want to take on long-term salary either. So to send salary to another team, like, and what ended up happening with Larry Nance going from Cleveland to Portland and a first-round pick going to Chicago, like, there had to be a pretty unique circumstance for that to happen. And Cleveland, like, definitely signed him to a, a deal that they thought was tradable and could move forward. Um, but ultimately, like, I think he was potentially a hedge if the Evan Mobley-Jared Allen pairing didn't exactly work out where he could have potentially been the floor man next to one of those guys. But I think the Cleveland situation allowing him to play three and then what he was able to do this summer with FIBA has kind of set him up. And he, he said, he said exactly to me that his confidence is at an all time high where he feels more and more comfortable than ever has before to kind of freelance on the perimeter and make plays with the ball in his hands um, what what do you see in that locker room in practice, you know, during games at shoot rounds in his face and his energy with his teammates? It, se- it seems like he's kind of playing, you know, the most freely he's kind of felt in his NBA career. Yeah, I think for sure. And I think it is a confident situation. And I think it is kind of a, a situation more analogous to where he is in Finland, which is he is the number one guy on this jazz team, right? Like he it can come in and say like, Hey, I'm, I'm the best player here and, and kind of give me the shots. And, and uh, I, you know, he's had a number of post-up opportunities. Um, you know, I think what I, I really like about Lowry so far is that he has been versatile in his game too. Obviously like kind of has shown the ability to be a three level scorer, which is, which is really impressive, but yeah, totally. I, I think confident, very kind of assured in, in, in who he is as a player and, Honestly, in the first four years of his career, I, I didn't necessarily get that, right? Like, I, I saw a player who was kind of hesitant at times or, you know, was trying to figure out what, uh, you know, when to hang out on the perimeter and shoot threes and, you know, as kind of drafted as a stretch four and when to use his size to attack the glass and, and show that he could be more than that. And, um, you know, I think kind of the, the, the Eurobasket experience has unlocked some of that. And then also, I think, again, giving Will Hardy some credit here, like his philosophy so far has been that everyone should attack the offensive glass. So therefore, Lowry should obviously do that. And then like the, the number of read and react choices and passes in, in the system offensively, I've just given him a lot of touches. And so I think he, he feels the kind of confidence that that brings. And, and you know, so he, he can kind of take whether that's even like step back threes or, or kind of post up turnarounds or, you know, kind of sweeping finishes in the, in the, in the lane. And then you get kind of the, the put back opportunities, the easy kind of pick and roll stuff. Um, and it's all added up to, you know, we, we've seen him have a 30 point game. We've seen him be a really efficient scorer so far, but yeah, like it's, it's kind of been awesome. And it, it's always kind of fun to see players kind of break out in their fifth and sixth years, right? Like kind of later on in their second contracts, but I think this this looks like a pretty legitimate breakout, given that it's not just you know five games of NBA play; it's also a really good summer of play that he had in in good competition overseas. He also hasn't really. I'm pulling up the numbers now. He hasn't really shot the ball well from three yet either. He's doing right. I mean, he's he's shooting uh, only 24 percent from three, career 36 percent three point shooter, um, which pretty good for seven footer, right? And he's Still shooting a career high 17 attempts in the field with um, yeah 64% inside the arc. It's pretty impressive. A lot of that's from the mid range. I'm not going to dive too deep in numbers because it doesn't really matter too too much to me. That's not what you guys come to hear me talk about. Um, but just watching him play and talking to 
people are in a situation like the fact that he's hitting these kind of fadeaways in the mid range and pretty much getting to a spot, deciding this is where I'm going to take off. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. Um, this is where he's going to take off and shoot over, over you. Like his release point so damn high. It seems like he's, he's kind of conducting himself. Like it doesn't really matter who's in front of him. He's going to be a score right now. We'll see how long it's sustainable, but it'd be kind of awesome if he continues to do that and becomes a most improved candidate. Yeah. I, you know, I think, I think, you know, maybe this is just the homerism in me, but I, I think it's pretty likely again, given that we, we do have, you know, uh, uh, over, you know, 15, 20 games of him between the two teams this summer, him playing this well. And, you know, again, yeah, the, the three-point shooting is figures to improve. Yeah, probably will get a little bit less efficient from inside the arc. And yet, like, those things will balance themselves out. So, like, I was been kind of trying to figure out a comparison for who he's played like so far and, and just... um, I mean, it like, the maybe the best one I've heard so far is kind of like, seven foot Gordon Hayward and just like kind of the versatility and uh, shooting again, ability to score from all three levels uh, ability to run, pick and roll a little bit, but um, you know, like it just, and able to kind of compete defensively as well, you know, like not an amazing defender, not, but like uh, we'll kind of surprise you with some shot blocks and stuff like that so far too. So like, um again has been really impressive and you know we'll again we'll see what happens but uh i i think he's been kind of the guy who's exceeded expectation the most on this jazz team he's also like coming up I mean, the shot block was there but he's coming up in these switch situations like i was watching the bit of a houston game last night and he's like dispelling kevin porter jr drives and forcing swings to the opposite there like he's he can handle his own i, I think yeah i mean a big thing that people in Chicago were kind of frustrated by was his lack of foot speed and inability to kind of handle himself in those situations. And I think, I really do think playing in Cleveland with Jared Allen, Evan Mobley behind him to clean up any of his mistakes, he was able to kind of gamble a bit and take more chances, find more rhythm in doing it. Um, and I guess I'm not, I'm not comparing him to these two guys, but the way the league is moving right now and how size is coming back and we're seeing Orlando have, Paolo Bancaro and Franz Wagner playing as their main ball handlers with Marco Fultz and Jalen Suggs injured. And you've got Bull Bull playing a lot of minutes. Um, obviously, the, the flip side of the Utah deal where Minnesota's trying to make Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert work. Um, it's kind of there, – there was a lot of seven-footers, you know, in the in the heyday of Dirk and KG who were playing small forward at a time in the early 2000s, right? Like, yeah. Uh, tr- trends are cyclical, you know. So I, I, I'm curious if he's going to be. I mean, he's kind of playing in the not again. We're not getting too hyperbolic and saying this is what he's doing, but he's playing in the archetype of what like Kevin Durant does. Like if we start yeah. to see more of these seven foot players, the Victor Wembanyama is coming in the pipeline. I wonder if that seven foot like wing player is going to continue to be. Uh, a common a commonality across the league. Yeah, you know it's funny. Like uh, talking to like uh, talk to Quinn Snyder for so long, and 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 just kind of how he thinks and how kind of some other coaches think of by you know going around the league. But uh, it, it's kind of less about the position you play and more about what you bring to 
the spot on the floor, right? Like, so it's not, hey, if you're, a, you know, if you're a three, can you rebound? It's like, all right, we need enough rebounding out there among the five players that are out there. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think that's, uh, Lowry's been really good on the glass so far. Um, you know, I, I think, and then it's like, okay, well, you know, traditionally you would say threes can't catch up, but like, what's, you know, what's the difference between Lowry ideally and, uh, kind of the traditional small forward that would be playing and starting five years ago or, you know, on most teams now. And it's like, you know, Lowry can probably guard that guy. And, and, and so I don't know, I, I just think that it's, um, he has so many pluses on the floor that it's, at least again in the first five games and and what he did in Eurobasket that you know there aren't a ton of weaknesses and and it just becomes kind of a no-brainer to put your other good players around him and uh in the end you're you're just getting a lot of value from wherever he plays the other adage is it's not about what position you play it's what position can you guard and he's, yeah, he's, shown yep. the, he's, shown, he's shown the versatility of being able to guard a three through five right now. Like, I'm not saying he's locked down at all times against all those guys, but I mean, in the NBA, your opposition's going to score, right? I mean, we're at historic levels of offensive efficiency. Really, sometimes just about making the game harder on your opponent, and he does that. He does that. Yep. Um, okay, moving on from our line of marketing love fest. Um, Colin Sexton was arguably at the time the headliner of the return not laurie marketing um someone who i remember hearing back in summer league like right before i left summer league i think it was my last night and and the night that the reports came out that utah was engaging in trade conversation and was engaging with new york um that colin sexton was a player that this jazz front office and the word i was told was that particularly justin zanuck was a fan of um so and I heard that they were first, and I I I got to confirm that they had first brought their sex and interest to Cleveland by means of a potential Mike Conley sign trade or Bogdanovich sign trade, um, along those lines. And Cleveland didn't really have much interest in that. They wanted Sexton back at a lower number than Utah was willing to pay him, um, and that was the hold up there. But lo and behold, he becomes one of the centerpieces and. Um, he's kind of been a, a bit of a curious prospect when I think dating back to his draft year, people like super inflated that four on five game he had at Alabama or three on five, <laughs> three on five. Yeah. And, um, he got kind of like a, he was one of the good narrative guys, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe the bark is louder than the bite in terms of just how good this player can be. And then Garland came around and clearly was the, the point guard of the future in Cleveland and, and then Sexton gets hurt ahead of this free agency. And he was kind of like an analytical darling, but they're one, one of those guys who hasn't really actually put it on tape yet in, in, in full legit sample size. So all that to set the table and say, where have you seen him play compared to what you believe Utah's expectations were when they acquired him and what has been uh, the difference if there is one? Yeah, look, I mean, he's coming off the bench, which I think surprised a lot of people. Um, and I, I think he's, uh, you know, playing fine in that role, but not setting the world on fire or, uh, you know, really, I guess, disappointing either. You know, I think he would say some of it is, you know, he expects to start again one day um, if if and when the Jazz move Mike Conley and then 
uh, if and when he gets kind of more recovered from this injury. You know, he, he says he's playing at 100%, but kind of still trying to knock off some of the rust. And, you know, I, I, I do believe that to some extent. I also, you know, do think that there's a worry about, um, frankly, yeah, just how good Colin Sexton is. Like, he did score 24 points a game in a season, and yet, like, that was a really bad season for the Cavs. And, you know, is is he an empty calorie scorer or is he the kind of player that can, can lead you to a lot of victories, right? And and so I think, um, I, to me, I, I will say kind of just in person, he is much smaller than I thought. Um, and, you know, obviously you look at the, the measurements or whatever, but, like, he's the same height as Mike Conley out there. And, and, uh, and that's, you know, limiting as to what, you know, what he can do, um, what positions he can play, who he can guard, and so on. I think it does show up on the tape, too, where he is kind of a defensive bulldog and then just can't finish these plays. I, I think he stays in front and then really kind of struggles to defend the shot at all because he's just kind of shorter than than everyone else on the floor, right? So I think that's a real concern. Um, you know, I think the, the point guard playmaking is, is a concern. You know, I think he can get a little bit tunnel vision-y at times. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that's in, it, probably going to continue to be a concern. I think he'll probably improve a little bit. But, he, you know, I don't think he's going to be a plus passer at the point guard position. And so it's like, okay, you know, I, I, the phrase I heard that then Cleveland was looking for to pay him um, was Jordan Clarkson money. Right, like kind of the three-year, forty to forty-five million dollars, and I don't know if if you can confirm that, but um, the Jazz kind of gave him more than that. They gave him the fourth year. They gave him the seventy-five million dollars, and um, you know maybe you say, hey, the, as the cap goes up, new TV deal comes in. It's a young team that doesn't have a lot of other like big uh, expenditures in in the future coming up. That's fine, um, but at this point, you know, I think he's a, a question mark on whether or not that's been a good contract, you know, it looks like good value for the Jazz so far. And again, super early, five games, coming back from injury and so forth. But yeah, you know, I think they're real question marks. So he came in via trade. There's certainly expectation that there will be plenty more trade activity in Utah. Just going to get it out of the way. because I know there are more talks about or more reporting done about uh, Clarkson and Conley potentially going to L.A. for Russell Westbrook. I mean, look, last time I talked about the Lakers really in depth in the show, I find it kind of funny now that every day I look on Twitter in the morning and I see someone else around the the industry said, I've written about Russell Westbrook on the Lakers. We get it. It's a thing. I think partially it's a thing and remains a thing because any potential deal with Utah could have been struck all this time, right? They already made a deal with Patrick Beverly a smaller scale that brought over Taylor Horton Tucker. Like, I think if there's a bigger Russell Westbrook deal to be made with Utah, it would have already happened. Am I off base in thinking that there is, if there hasn't been a deal done yet, there doesn't seem to be wiggle room standing in the way of, of that potentially being like a bridge that can be crossed later down the road. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I think it totally depends on the Lakers side of things. And I, I you know, I think, Tony Jones at The Athletic reported that the Jazz offered Mike Conley, Boyan Bogdanovich, and I believe Rudy Gay, and the first-round pick they received in the Royce O'Neal trade, the one that's the worst of of Philadelphia, uh, Brooklyn, and Houston. So, you know, you're really talking probably the 25th pick or something like that. 
Um, although we'll with how those teams have started, yeah, we'll <laughs> see, right? But um, in exchange for Russell Westbrook and the two unprotected 2027 and 2029 firsts, um, and said that the Lakers turned that down. So to me, that 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 says two things. Like, um, one, if if that really was the offer, the Jazz were pretty motivated to get that done, right? Like that that they would add in kind of a a lesser first in exchange for the the upside or the variance in the two picks down the road. I think does indicate like, hey, they they may have been willing to to kind of make this happen. Um, B, it's hard to get it done. Now, I, you know, I think Boyan Bogdanovich would have been the centerpiece of that trade and. He's he's lighting the world on fire yeah. up in Detroit, you know, like uh, has the most threes in the NBA right now. And and so them not being able to trade him is of a huge detriment to that value, uh, to that trade, right? So, you know, Malik Beasley is not Boyan Bogdanovich. Jordan Clarkson is not Boyan Bogdanovich. Like, Bogey's just really, really good in a way that some of these other players won't. Now, you know, Jordan... Clarkson and, and Beasley and, and whoever else, even Sexton, you can imagine as kind of like an add-in as, as part of this trade, would be really helpful for what we see from the Lakers right now. But the Lakers have been like uh, seemingly pretty set on not giving up these two future firsts to improve this team this year. And, you know, like while they have all the pressure in the world to do that, they also, I think, had all the pressure in the world to do that last week and, yeah, didn't get it done. So. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know if that changes and we'll see if how, I guess, flighty the Lakers are, but to me, like that, that's the team that is, uh, kind of holding up conversations and, or has been rather than, you know, I think the jazz would be willing to make a deal somewhere in that ballpark. I would agree. That's, that has been my read of it for quite a while. Um, I think, I mean, Last, last thing we'll say, I think it's been made very clear to people around the NBA and to rival teams that the Lakers are only willing to move those two picks if they're getting back someone or some some ones that they really think moves them into a title contending realm for now and the foreseeable future. Um, I mean, Bojan Bogdanovic would seem to be a player that could help many a, a playoff team and team he's currently performing so well on that you alluded to, the Detroit Pistons certainly have some expectations of being a little bit better this year. Um, I think that's, I mean, fully evident in their trade to acquire him. But when that deal went down and he went to the Pistons, definitely heard a lot of people in in front offices saying, that's it, that's all they got. And yeah. um, I'm curious why you think that was the price that the Jazz were willing to accept uh, to part ways with that type of uh, trade trip on the market, if you will. There's been some reporting, and I apologize, I can't remember which reporter said this, so again, that the Jazz had offered a promise to Bogdanovich that they would trade him before the season, Um, and honestly, I kind of believe it. Um, You know, he had sold his house, I think he put his house on the market up in July or August or September, you know, well before the season began, well, well before training camp began. Um, I, I think he, uh, you know, expected to be traded. Certainly, I knew, you know, reported that at the time, and so it may have just been like, a, "Hey, this is the best deal that we have." Um, as training camp opens, this is what we have to stick stick with. You know, I think Danny Ainge thinks really highly of Kelly Olynyk more than the rest of the league does. Um, you know, clearly the Saban Lee was just to make the numbers work. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, in Danny's defense, like, Kelly Olenek has been pretty awesome for the Jazz so far. So, um, 
but yeah, I you know I also when that deal went down expressed dismay like, hey, this is this is it, you know, this is all that the Jazz were able to get. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I, I continue to think Bogey is a really good player. Um, but, like, yeah, uh, you know, I, I was definitely surprised that that there's, uh, that there's that's all they were able to get. Um, you know, I think the other thing, frankly, is it does save them money, that, that deal. Um, and it keeps the, the – what I heard from the front office at the time was uh, the, the offers – they did receive some offers that included a first-round pick back. Uh, they believe those would have been late firsts, and those deals also meant taking on longer-term salary. Um, and in the end, they just went with kind of the clean exit with Kelly Olynyk, who uh, has mostly non-guaranteed next year. There you go. Um, yeah, and there, there were skeptics around the league, too, who thought, you know, I got which was pretty good. So yeah, maybe, uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe the F&T just had him playing elsewhere. Yeah, and we'll see if Detroit's able to flip him too, right? Like, I mean, I think they're, uh, at least, you know, if, if there's the trajectory of the season goes where it is for them, like, I think they'll be willing to move him and, and see what they get. There's definitely um, talk, let's say, of uh, the potential for that to happen. I would say that. I would say that. Um, okay. One other thought I had for you is I have heard nothing but glowing things about Will Hardy. I don't know Will Hardy. Um, I haven't really been watching the Jazz too, too closely at what, what they're running in terms of just how it pertains to Larry Market. So what is your early scattering report? I remember the early days of Brad Stevens in Boston and Brett Brown in Philly and Jeff Hornacek in, in Phoenix. And there's a young team and a new head coach and a rebuild and a new era and everyone's singing – the same company tune and drinking the Kool-Aid. The coach can kind of become a bit of a, a cult hero amongst the, the Twitterati of the, of the local fan base. What, what's the, what's the legend brewing about Will Hardy already? Yeah, I think it's fair to say like jazz fans are super stoked on Will. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. Cause I just uh, like, haven't gotten to know him that well yet. Right. Like, you know, I think one of those things about, covering a team on a beat is you're really talking to the head coach twice a day on game days and once a day on non-game days. And like, you just have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of time to talk and a lot of time to get to know one another. Um, but that just hasn't happened yet because, you know, we're, we're only five games into the season. And, you know, I remember like Quinn Snyder's first year, he, I asked him kind of a specific question at a shoot around and he dragged me out to the court and like kind of, moved my moved my body in a way that would like set the screen angle differently so he could explain this pick and roll <laughs> defense question right like would just literally like show me on the court what was going on um and i haven't had that experience with will yet like so i i think he's kind of kept some stuff closer to the vest um you know i i think he again so it, i'm also kind of going on secondhand stuff here but yeah i mean everyone talks glowingly of him i think kind of the biggest thing that people repeat over and over again is kind of his uh, ability to relationship build and kind of in a very authentic way um, with his players. You know, he's doing like a, a daily free throw contest with uh, Simone Fontecchio and Leandro Balmaro um, just like is, is kind of part of these drills in, in a way that's kind of interesting as a, as a 34 year old coach. Um, and then, you know, I think schematically didn't reveal a lot at first. And what we've seen is like five out read and react offense with a ton of passing, 
uh, a ton of off-ball movement, off-ball screens, split action, um, kind of these wedge screens as well. And, and it's just kind of, it, it, you know, if it doesn't work the first time, they're just moving so much um, and can get so much in the last 10 or 5 seconds of the shot clock that someone ends up getting an open shot somehow. Um, and, it's yeah, it's been really effective so far. Uh, they've been super aggressive on the offensive glass. They're the best offensive rebounding team in the league uh, so far. Um, and, you know, the defense, I think, has been, like, mostly an effort and, uh, you know, collapse the paint and, and get out to shooters kind of thing. You know, I don't think it's been super complicated. But, um, you know, what, what they have done so far has been really effective. Again, I do think some of it has been teams have no idea how to – haven't had the chance to scout it, and I think they will – um, get better at doing that, especially, you know, the better teams. But um, it is a, kind of a very modern offense, kind of like, you know, I don't want to say Warriors-esque, but there is kind of some of that similar, like just a ton of off-ball cuts, off-ball screens, uh, movement you don't expect that leads to easy baskets. What's another storyline or thing to look at about this team that we haven't discussed that's maybe potentially getting uh, undervalued or are flying under the radar here? Yeah, you know, like, I, I'm curious on the rookies on this team, frankly. You know, so uh, Walker Kessler is getting playing time and looks really, really good. Um, 22nd pick in the draft last year and, uh, you know, is 21 years old, was a the best shot blocker in the nation for Auburn last year. But I think, you know, the just the hulking centers have gotten, uh, have just become lower valued in, in the draft and, and kind of understandably so. He looks really, you know, like a, a, a guy who will be a backup center in the NBA for a long time at least, you know, and, and maybe kind of has the upside of a Steven Adams type, uh, Zubach type where, you know, is, is not going to set the world off on fire offensively, but um, is so solid defensively, sets screens well, just knows how to play, right? Like uh, he's been awesome for a rookie and is just also a smart kid. Um, really curious kid, watches a ton of film, great to talk to. Uh, he's been, he's been really great so far. And then on the other kind of the, uh, of this is the, the third piece of the return of the Donovan Mitchell trade. Ochai Agbaji has not mm-hmm. been in the rotation, uh, has been below Nikhil Alexander Walker and Simone Fontecchio and Rudy Gay in the rotation. Uh, Fontecchio also- looks great, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. He hasn't played very much, but when he has, yeah, he like, just has shot the hell out of the ball, right? Uh, and, uh, yeah, looks get, like yeah, a real player. Yeah, a couple of great driving dunks, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so, like, it is surprising that a 22-year-old rookie who uh, is a lottery pick, who was the Final Four most, most outstanding player last year, um, is getting Jack Squat playing time on a team that, you know, is, is not expected to be, like, a contending team, right? So, um, I think that's a little bit of a concern, and... and you know, frankly, the, the coaches and, and uh, people around the team are, are kind of saying, like, look, he's just not ready yet. And I think that is, uh, I don't know if I want to say a red flag, but an orange flag on a guy who is drafted that early um, at that age. You know, it's not like he's 19 uh, to to kind of had the struggles that he's had and uh, apparently in making himself kind of an NBA rotation player already. One thing I'll say about Walker Kessler is – before the trade to Rudy, and this will before the trade for Rudy, and this will pull back the curtain. I think a touch too on just how set the Timberwolves were on the idea of moving Cat to the four and pairing him with the five. We talked about this before, but 
And they were definitely one of the teams that were poking around on Miles Turner um, back at the deadline a year ago. Um, I mean, Walker was someone that they were excited about. I had heard in, I think, the week leading up to the draft. That was one of the, that was one of the picks that I, I felt most confident in, uh, in slotting happening because of just the overwhelming information, let's say, that, that uh, Minnesota was a fan of him. And so when, when he went in that deal and there was conversation about he was, he, he was kind of representing like another first-round pick, um, to add to the bounty that you could say Danny Ainge got for Rudy Gobert, I don't think he was just like a throw-in. I think he was someone that uh, Minnesota probably didn't really want to give up, and Utah was excited to get from the jump. Yeah, and I think rightfully so. And, and you know, I, I will also say I heard the same things about Akbaji that Utah really liked him in the draft and, uh, you know, really valued him as, as part of the return there and then hasn't, you know, they has not, shown that in training camp and in, in the season so far. But, um, yeah, I mean, Walker Walker rules. Uh, he, I, I hope kind of you get the chance to talk to him. I hope kind of fans get the chance to know him a little bit. Obviously, like, no one's expecting the 22 pick to, to be the media face of the franchise or, you know, it's, it's not. <laughs> but, like, he is uh, consistently interesting to listen to. I think is really thoughtful about how he goes about his game. And, again, it's just kind of really impressive for a 21-year-old. All right, we're taking our regular call, Charlie Saturday. What's going on, man? What's up, fellas? Got to get in on this Walker Kessler conversation. There we um, go. There we go. You know, there was a couple instances there have been already throughout the season where I've noticed opposing bigs, um, Pirtle and San Antonio and and Jokic on opening night. They're watching Kessler, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but. I noticed they both gave these sort of like approving nods watching them from the bench. Like, okay, you know, this dude's going to be around for a while. Um, have you noticed that uh, Andy from opposing bigs, like have they said anything about going up against Kessler? And then more broadly, I'm wondering for both of you, um, how quickly do you think veterans are able to sniff out, you know, if a guy is going to stick in the league based on the first few times they play a rookie. I'll, I'll start. I mean, like, A, I have not talked to the opposing bigs after the game. And, and frankly, that is a terrific story idea. So thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just going to copy that and use it. Um, I, I mean, honestly, I think veterans are pretty judgy about that and pretty quickly judgy. And I think you know, sometimes they, they can be wrong and sometimes they can be right. I mean, look, I remember um, hearing really pretty negative things about Dante Exum um, for a lot of, you know, early when the Jazz drafted him and then kind of uh, repeatedly as, as he kind of struggled and came back from injury and whatever else, of like, hey, this kid just doesn't have it, right? Like, and, and in the end, there were some really good things about what Dante Exum brought to the NBA floor, but he's not an NBA player right now. And I think kind of fairly so just kind of doesn't have that level of skill and talent that you need to succeed in the league. Um, on the other hand, when Donovan Mitchell first came in and popped, you know, it was immediate. It was, we were hearing things after summer league practice day one, where I was like, oh my God, this, this kid's incredible. This kid is, is going to be at least an incredible addition to our team, if not a future NBA star, which is obviously what it became. So I think there is like, players do kind of thin slice that. And I think, you know, obviously I hear that more from the jazz side and I'm talking about practice, but I think opposing players, yeah, really do kind of that as well. Now, sometimes they're wrong. Like the famous 
campaign Chicago story where like campaign was supposedly useless and then became really, really helpful in Phoenix. And as a, you know, one of the best backup point guards in the league. Um, but you know, and, and guys can improve and change, but yeah, I think that that veteran guys definitely try to figure out, Hey, who's good. Who's not, who's the threat. Um, and, and who's, who's, you know, do I really have respect for right away? Yeah. I think the threat thing is important. Um, look, how many times have you heard guys say there's only 450 of these jobs. I'm so lucky to have one. A lot of those guys don't believe that. A lot of those guys know that they are what they are and that they are one of the best players that plays basketball, who one of the best people alive who plays basketball, probably one of the best people ever who's going to walk this planet to play basketball. And their job is going to be safe and they're going to make big, big money no matter what. Then there are probably the overwhelming majority of players in the league who know that their average career lifespan is going to be three to five years. And if they don't prove that they're a winning player on a playoff team, they're going to be out of the league and playing in Europe or playing in the G League trying to get back in the doorstep or potentially even doing something else altogether. So, yeah, I think that that's twofold. I think if you're a veteran and you – I mean, especially now in a space where team building is so competitive and executives and front offices are looking for – as many advantages of players on their rookie deals who can compete right now while you're carrying a heavy tax bill or a heavy payroll with, you know, multiple $30 million plus players on your team to compete for a title, you know, Jordan Poole, for example, in Golden State last year, and he's still on a rookie deal this year, helps a lot for Golden State when they're already paying Wiggins and Steph Curry and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson and Kevin Looney gets paid. So, those the, those things matter because there is as much as the money's going up, there is a finite amount of dollar to be spent, and every aspect of it, whether you're someone who's looking at rookies coming in as a potential threat to your job, or as a potential person to help you go and get a ring and win some games, or if you're a coach to save your ass and keep your job and not get fired, or if you're an executive, same thing because you stuck a bit of your reputation on the line to select that guy. People know and make and make and they're they're maybe it's the nature of the NBA or just the nature of uh, uh, American testosterone competitive society. People are in, in the league are quick to just make a decision on a guy too and take a stance and make a take and then be willing to argue about it. So yeah, I, I think those decisions and and those uh, opinions get formed pretty quickly and pretty early. All right. Andy Larson, anything else you want to say? Anything you want to ask me? Anything you want to plug? The, the, the floor is yours. <laughs> uh, did you, Have you done the sauna thing? Or tell me about the – you were clearly curious about the uh, marketing sauna thing. So I – in college, uh, I lived kind of like off, cam- uh, off campus. Um, and there was a smaller gym that no one went to that had a sauna in it that me and my roommate at the time when we were young and athletic and lifting all the time, we would go to the sauna after the gym. And I have valued saunas ever since. I actually went to a bathhouse uh, in Brooklyn, like on Wednesday, not to be, okay. not to share too much personal information. <laughs> um, and yeah, I love the, the hot room into the cold plunge. It's, it's amazing. If, if, if people are skeptics and doubters, uh, give it a shot. It is really, really good for 
a lot of parts of your body. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what the actual sales pitch is, but yeah, I'm in. Right. What about you? Tell me about your the, Oslo experience. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Is uh, You posted the video of Lowry, Markinen jumping into the water in the Finnish uh, floating sauna, and I was just... I got the chance to do that this summer, and I realized uh, on the day of the Donovan Mitchell trade, I think it was three hours before the trade, I was in this floating sauna in Oslo. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, it gets to, you know, 160 degrees, whatever, inside the sauna. You jump out into the freezing bay, and it's like 45-degree water out there, and then go back and forth. And it, it was like a, it was 20 bucks to rent the sauna for two hours. Like, it was it was awesome. Um yeah, I, I don't for twenty dollars. Yeah, is a steal, my friend. That is a steal. <laughs> yeah, it was it was cool. Um, so I don't know. Basically, maybe maybe the point of this podcast is Lowry Markkinen is cool and good good NBA player, and you should go to Scandinavia and be in a sauna. There you go. All right, and you should read Andy Larson. At oh yeah, I forgot Salt to pitch myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at Andy B Larson, read the Salt Lake Tribune. I don't know. There you go. All right, man. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back sometime next week. Not sure who, not sure when, but we'll be doing two shows. And I hope you all enjoy the basketball and have a good weekend. Take care.